You're listening to All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? I'll give you anything. Joining us this morning from the other side of the planet is Grant Newsham. Grant, uh, good evening to you. How are you? Mm, fine, thanks. Mm-hmm. How's everything in uh, Taipei, Taiwan? Uh, it's okay. You know, it's uh, hot, hot, hot. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, the yeah, you know the uh, what do you call it? The uh, the virus thing is bothering Taiwan like it is everywhere else. Really? Do you guys mm-hmm. have the Delta? variant of the virus or oh, I don't what, do you, know. what do you have it's all oh i don't know it's um whatever the the chinese have cooked up <laughs> most recently uh, but no i don't keep that kind of kind of oh. score oh so you don't have that kind of granularity on the issue well that's right no i haven't drilled down on it that much yeah <laughs> um i would be remiss um stunning story uh, in the news uh, about the Bonhomme Richard, uh, United States Navy sailor, has been charged uh, uh, with arson, and uh, and that has long been speculated. Uh, I heard as recently as probably two weeks ago that uh, while they investigated that, um, that there was not enough evidence to charge anybody, so no one would be charged. And lo and behold. Uh, last week, um, by the time everybody listens to this, um, ch- the Navy uh, referred charges against a sailor. Um, uh, it's been a bit of a tough slog for the Navy here. You've been around the Navy a lot, given uh, what you've done in the uh, in the Pacific for decades now. Um, thoughts on the United States Navy and where it's at, and that. And then we're going to get on the heels of this, I guess, in September, we're going to get um, their investigation into why they couldn't put a fire out on a ship that was docked in San Diego. And which I I don't know how they're going to put lipstick on that pig, but I don't imagine that story is going to be a good one either. Um, uh, give me your thoughts. You've watched the Navy for quite some time. Um What's going on, and how do they pull out of this, and and are they pulling out of it, in your opinion? Oh boy, you know I'm, you know I'm of course, you know, not the the last word on it, but I follow it um, closely enough. And there's, they've got some problems, you know they, you know to say the least, they, you know, it's hard to say what the what it is, but. They, I don't think they could fight a war against a competent adversary and and win, or it'd be a fifty-fifty thing at best. You know, at some point they forgot that the purpose of the navy is to fight a war at sea in the in the the far ocean, or the deep ocean, whatever, and and win. And I don't haven't really noticed that for the last twenty years that come to mind. There were exceptions, and that was when, for example. Uh, Fellows like uh, Admiral Robert Willard was in charge at Pack Fleet and um, uh, PACOM, 
And he was all about fighting wars, and the guys on his team were. And then you get before him and after him, you get people who did not think fighting a war uh, against the Chinese or somebody like that uh, was part of their job description. Uh, so it's like an organization that forgot what it's about. You know, I think a guy, guys like Arlie Burke or Ray, Raymond Spruance or Halsey or Nimitz, I don't know that they would recognize uh, what's become of the Navy. And there's been some good, good um, pieces written lately. I think John Lehman wrote one, uh, the former Navy, Navy secretary, uh, that have really have highlighted this and just laid into what passes for Navy leadership. Uh, the... Uh, you remember when they were ships were crashing into each other a couple of years ago, that there was a lot of toing and froing and talk. And uh, I remember the thing that really stunned me was that uh, surface warfare officers were not being trained properly. And it appeared that in the early 2000s, that instead of having a rigorous long long school at Newport, they were given a, a box of diskettes and sent to their first ship. So the, and the idea was the ship would the ship would teach them whatever they needed to know about ship driving and that's kind of insane you know it'd be like uh, say an airline say United and for their pilots they had their uh, say a, a new pilot he gets you know forty hours whatever to be able to you know get a private license and then he shows up at the airline and they'll teach him in the uh, in the cockpit. And that's not really the kind of airline you want to fly. But it was it was that dumb. And you, and you know that there was some admiral back in the early 2000s who was, you know, got famous or got awards for thinking outside the box. You know, he was going to take advantage, leverage the dot-com boom. And he was going to teach by diskettes. And somebody no doubt got credit for that and wrote it upward. And then you have the littoral combat ship disaster and nobody will call that what it is so you know one hardly knows what to say about it and it's just, it's like an, say, an organization that forgot what its purpose is and ultimately it's not leprechauns who are to who put it there it was uh, you know people of considerable rank who turned it into what it is today where you know it hasn't got enough ships of the right kind to to be able to fight and nor is it really i'm not even sure psychologically prepared and in recent times this wokeism uh, is further gutting it so but even before you know this woke business came along uh, i wasn't you know the the navy's had some serious problems uh, but of course you know within you know there's plenty within the navy there's no there's any number of just fine people fine officers and fine sailors but institutionally, there is, I think they're in, a, sort of in an organization that lost its way. And unfortunately, there's a, uh, the Chinese Navy and the Russian Navy have not lost their ways. And the Chinese in particular have been geared for the last 20 plus years to develop so that they can defeat us. And that is their sole purpose. Um, so while we've been jerking around, uh, you know, we've, you know our, our adversaries have not, and we're in a problem. We've got some problems here. How the, how you fix it? Um, well, you cashier a whole bunch of officers and bring in people who want to fight, uh, and that would be a start. You're also going to need to to have the people in Congress who 
uh, know why a Navy is necessary, have them somehow or other get some influence and power. Uh, and that's going to be a tough one. So even if the military does everything right, you do seem to have a, an administration that doesn't see the importance of uh, of a strong Navy. Uh, but so I'm not all that optimistic about where we're headed, but we've, I suppose we've been in worse straits before, but it is, I don't know how you could really, um, what do you call it, speak optimistically about where we are and where we're going. That's just my take, you know, be like some guy sitting around in a barber shop, yeah, ask him what he thinks. Yeah. Well, you might have a little bit better take than that, that human being, the, um, but no, I, and again, the question is, how does this change? And again, on the heels of this is going to come an investigation into why, you know, they couldn't put out a, a fire on a ship for five days. And uh, a $5 billion ship burned and is now being scrapped in a, you know, what, you know, many would call a strategic disaster uh, for the country. And yeah. so, um, so again, yeah, the questions are, how do you turn, how do you turn this around? How do you get the Navy interested in being good ship drivers and, you know, in, in being good seamen, in being, um, good sailors, right? Good in the tradition, the finest tradition of a service that has a, as a, as a tremendous legacy. And, uh, yet, as you said, uh, seems to have lost its way as a warfighting organization, and we're watching the painful manifestations of that. And, um, you know, where is the kind of cigar-chomping, you know, straight-talking CNO, you know, that looks at sailors around the world and says, hey, here's where we're going, boys and girls. Get on board or get off, right? And that's right. I'm bringing pugil sticks back to recruit training. What? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, but again, just the, you know, the outward trappings of we are going to be a disciplined warfighting organization. That's job one. Everything comes second to that. And but I don't, uh, I don't see this. I, in fact, I was, you know, I lamented. Uh, you know, you saw whether it be the chairman or secretary or the CNO. Uh, up on Capitol Hill recently for budget stuff and taking the task for uh, the woke discussion that goes on constantly in the United States. And, you know, you, and about the CNO in particular, about books that have been added, you know, about people that are, are proponents of critical race theory. And, and, I, and I was thinking to myself, you know, so what would you want to hear and I think what you would want to hear is the CNO say something like that was something that would inspire confidence. Well, Senator, um, that book, and this is not the case, by the way, but this would just be, you know, uh, Admiral McNamara, CNO of the United States Navy. Well, Senator, that was one of three books that we added. Um, that one certainly does espouse critical race theory, but we added another book from Shelby Steele, a conservative, and then there's a book from a moderate, and we're recommended that, recommending that our sailors read these three. And then what we're trying to do is treat, teach critical thinking skills, in this case relative to race. And we know that we're going to have better sailors, we're going to have a better discussion, but 
you know, we want to look at the bar, a broad spectrum of, of ideas. We will apply this to gender. We'll bl- apply this to sexual orientation. It, it's a, the subject matter really is irrelevant. What we want is sailors that can think critically, and and we're trying to teach how to do that. And that's why that book in particular, Senator, is on. You know what? Strike up the music, right? When you heard that answer, like, who is this guy? Like, could he, could he run for president? Right. I mean, something that would make sense to you. But again, so where's where are the people that, you know, turn this around? And uh, and that's a difficult question, because it certainly appears that they struggle in embracing being a war fighting organization. So, yeah, you know, it is. You know, I think a lot of organizations, you know, they uh, they reach a point at which. Uh, they keep promoting like-minded people. And, you know, I mentioned Admiral Willard. You know, for, he was about a decade ago, a little more in PACOM, Indo-PACOM. And he was a warfighter. And people around him were as well. And he, made, he was not popular in Washington, uh, in the administration or in Washington in general. And once his term ended, he was sent out to pasture instead of finding more for him to do and finding like-minded people. And they put in sort of a more pliant individual to replace him. And that's what they've been replaced with. And unfortunately, it seems as though if you can pass the interview for these kind of jobs, you're probably not a guy that Admiral Nimitz would have, you know, thought much of. Uh, And breaking out of it, it seems to take some disaster to get these kind of guys sort of front and center but we've always had some chance to catch our breath after the d- disaster hits. And I'm not sure we will this time. Uh, the, and I had mentioned, of course, the, the littoral combat ship, I think to a lot of people, just the mention of it uh, sort of typifies or everything that's wrong, you know, in the Navy of the last few decades. Um, but for people who don't follow it that closely, what it is, it's this uh, very thin, it's aluminum ship, uh, some of them are catamarans. And the idea was that it was uh, the Navy was never going to fight a serious opponent again. And therefore, what it needed was these fast moving ships uh, that, that you could put like modules on, like, you know, like uh, I don't know, um, missiles or anti mine warfare, you know, as plug and play sort of stuff. But these were just going to, sh- you know, shuffle around, uh, zoom around the region and take care of bandits and transnational criminals. And maybe if the wogs got unhappy at some point, we could, they could intimidate them. But it was not a ship that was designed to fight a competent enemy. And in fact, it, it can't take a hit. You know, any, it's, it's easy to put out of, um, uh, out of action, not to mention the mechanical problems they've had from the start. Uh, but if this is what you have sort of as the thing that shows the muscle of the U.S. Navy, you know, forget about it. It's the equipped compared to the Chinese Navy. This is the equivalent of like a swan boat, you know, that pond at Boston, Boston Commons. Uh, yeah, I, and yet some guy, there's a guy who, you know, there's admirals who made their career because they thought up the littoral combat ship. And you will find institutionally that nobody has just pointed out what everybody knows that this is a useless ship for what is for what America needs. And yet they count this in our sort of when they count up the number of ships, they actually include the littoral combat ship as though this is anything the Chinese take seriously. Uh, so that's kind of where we are. How you say how you fix it 
Um, I don't know, but the you know we seem to be better at burning down ships than than building them at a reasonable price and in a reasonable time. And so industry hasn't helped. You have once again you have Capitol Hill that hasn't helped. The Navy hasn't helped itself. And then industry, if you look at the, you know, it takes them like forever to build an amphib and they don't seem to be able to do it for less than a couple billion dollars. Whereas in the last 18 months, the Chinese have turned out, uh, I think it's three big deck amphibs and they can pretty much just turn on the tap anytime they want and crank out more. And yet us, you know, for us to get a new amphibious ship, it's um, a big deal uh, and really expensive and takes a long time. So, you know, we're not, I don't think, as we've, as we've just said, you know, I don't think we've given much uh, thought for the last 20 plus years to the idea of actually having to fight somebody. Uh, the people who have, you know, they have not been well treated uh, within the Navy in particular and other services as well. Uh, but certainly the, the Navy uh, has uh, just, you know, if we're going to fight, I don't know, Guinea or Nigeria, we're probably in good shape. But the People's Liberation Army Navy? I don't think so. Now, the game's not over, but we've gotten ourselves into a, a very difficult spot. Well, and as you said, I mean, quite rightly pointing out in history that, that you know, powerful nations, and I would say declining powerful nations, um, don't reform themselves <clears throat> on their own. It has to be something catastrophic that happens. And as you said, Grant, um, in our history, whether it be the Korean War, or World War II, we've had time to kind of um, get punched, recover from the punch, get our industrial capacity pointed in the right direction, and then ultimately, after we weed out, you know, the the people that really don't know what they're doing that were there when we started, we ultimately get competent people there. Our industrial capacity kicks in, and we. You know, we it saves the day. Well, I think anybody who writes seriously about a conflict with China will tell you that that will not the the United States will not be afforded those luxuries, and that you are going to win or lose with who's on the dance floor when the dance starts. And uh, and so all the all the things that Grant's talking about, you, it's just not going to be that way. You're not going to have time to um, get your shit together. Uh, before the thing is decided. So um, you can see, and it, and it doesn't seem like, and you watch the budget stuff, you know, and the Navy has said we need to to be, to be to get between 3 and 5% real growth on an annual basis to get to the 355-ship Navy that people are forecasting. This is what we need. This is what Admiral Gilday said they need. And yet when they barely get enough to stave off inflation, the response is, well, yeah, that we can work with that. And and this whole con- idea of, you know, you hear everybody say, oh, yeah, will you speak truth to power? Pfft. Why we even ask that question, I don't know. But I, it, I just find it head scratching when you find people that won't stand in testimony and say, no, this will not work for us. We have a glide path. This takes us below the glide path. And that means we're losing ground to, and this is the this is the word of the of the I don't know the last few years, we're losing ground to the pacing threat. Oh, which the pacing is threat! I forgot pacing, about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, to the pacing threat, which is China. 
So, and again, what turns this around? And the answer is by the time something happens that would actually turn it around, I mean, it might be too late. And that is uh, that is a serious admonition that's being uh, put in front of the Navy. But, but again, yeah. certainly yeah. huge issues for the Navy, cultural and operational issues to become a warfighting organization again. And that's what's in front of them. So it's, those challenges are not small. Yeah, you know, you'd like to see um, somebody just resign in protest and start speaking up. And there's not one. Uh, and, you know, you'd like to see, you know, I'd like to stress, of course, that within the Navy, there's, as I said, there's no shortage of good people. But it does seem as though, you, you know, in not just the Navy, but a lot of organizations and other military organizations, that it, there's a certain, I'd call it the ruling class is what shapes things. And if there are a bunch of yes men looking to get ahead and uh, not make waves or to placate, you know, their masters in Washington or you know, go along to get along guys, uh, then it really doesn't matter, you know, how good the people in the organization are or aren't. Uh, well, it doesn't matter if they're good, if they're bad, it's not going to help. But they, you know, you say there's a self-selection which seems to take place. Uh, within an organization that promotes a certain kind of guy to positions where they can can shape things. And once you lose that, you get, as I said, you get the, the accomplished brown-nosing yes-man. Uh, you've got some real problems trying uh, to fix it. But as I say, my experience with the Navy was a lot of it was with the amphibious guys. And, and these were great. You know, I was always very impressed with uh, the people that I dealt with. And when you saw the Navy like firing on all cylinders uh, and combined, particularly with the, the Marines, it was, it was impressive. And you saw what it, what it ought to be. But then, you know, you, you get, you know, the, um, some very unimpressive officers at senior levels, um, you know, who. You know, well, they, the they are. That's yeah. who gets promoted. We both know that. I mean, I call them high-functioning conformists. And so when push comes to shove, would a high, do high-functioning conformists, is it their instinct to say, yeah, I can't do this, I won't do this, I'm out, here's my resignation, I'm holding a press conference in 48 hours, just so you know. And, and they don't do that. And we've seen... Right, uh, the disastrous road in Afghanistan, where the United States tried to fashion something that had never existed on the planet, and didn't have the brains or the moral courage to look around and say, "Hey, look, here's the path we're beginning to go down." This didn't work so well in Vietnam, right? And if Vietnam, if you know, Germany and Japan were our 60-year efforts, right? And Vietnam was 100. Afghanistan's at least a 200-year effort. And that's that's not a joke. That's serious because this has never existed. They do not see the planet the way that we're asking them to see the planet, which is with a strong federal government. It's not in their nature. It's not in their history. And we just don't we don't seem to have guys. And if you look at the whole lead up to the invasion in Iraq, we don't seem to have the human capital inside the Pentagon. And and, and now you can see what it's doing to the Navy. I read in one of the studies that the study that Senator Cotton um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Who was it? There's four of them. And give me one so second. Admiral Montgomery was one of them. Didn't he? Yeah. So it was yeah. Senator Cotton, Congressman Jim Banks, who's a reserve naval officer right mm-hmm. now. Dan Crenshaw, United former United States Navy SEAL, and Mike Gallagher, former United States Marine mm-hmm. ground mm-hmm. intel officer. Um, this study's done by Lieutenant General Robert Schmidtle and Rear Admiral Mar- Mark Montgomery. Montgomery implicated in the Fat Leonard thing, by the way. Um, but anyway, uh, one of the things it says in here that warfighting capability is kind of, yeah, something you get to. Okay, of course you could do that. But if you screw that up, nobody's going to get fired for that. But if you screw up your diversity stuff, if you screw up your equal opportunity stuff, if you screw, screw up your sexual assault stuff, those will all get you fired and are much more important. And the report says that's simply the reality of the way commanding officers of naval vessels, naval installations, and naval units look at warfighting. It's not so important. Uh, yeah, it's um, it, that says it. You know, you'd mentioned Vietnam, and you know, I don't. It seems as though nobody or none of this, uh, the Navy's ruling class or even the Marine Corps' ruling class and certainly not the armies these days, they remember how bad things were in the late 60s, early 70s, and well into the 70s, remember where you had basically race riots. You had the, the, the force tribalizing itself. Right. Um, and it was just a disaster. And it seems like they have no idea that that ever happened. And now they want almost want to replicate it. And, you know, it's, it's funny, I guess if you live long enough, you do kind of get a little context. But what is what is happening now is nothing new. And these guys seem oblivious to it. You know, the, I, so I'm not optimistic about that. And, and as long as we're on this topic, you know, one, there's another sort of data point that I've always found very informative. If you, you know, for making this case that the Navy's ruling class over a number of years uh, forgot what it was about or didn't care. And that is the difference in anti-ship missile capabilities between the U.S. Navy and the Chinese Navy. And the, the, short, the short answer here is that the Chinese anti-ship missiles go a whole lot faster than ours, and they outrange ours by something like 50 miles at least. Um, and I think outsticked is the word, I think, that they used. And this is no secret. And it wasn't a secret, and yet the ruling class didn't care uh, to do anything about it. And there were guys who were been screaming bloody murder about this for a long time, and they were, of course, the troublemakers, you know, the, the guys who aren't the team players, and, oh, they're the alarmists and the you know, chicken little guys who are, you know, there's nothing to worry, you know, you know, trying to point out that the Chinese are a problem. And yet you let our guys have their principal weapon for a, sorry, a war at sea, um, let it become obsolete and let the other guy you know, move ahead with a better weapon that, than ours. And nobody seems to care uh, at the ruling class level. And to say it's that, that is one of those, it's an example of just how, uh, you call it, what a dereliction of duty that we've seen by the, sort of the, the, the ruling class uh, in, I would say, in, I'll just, I'm talking about the Navy, so I'll say within the Navy now, but the, and littoral combat ship, 
uh, about the ZoomWalt program. What was it like spending all the money in the world for three ships right. uh, without guns? Right. Uh, you know, somebody and who has been cashiered for this or has just been put, you know, just dropped off on the curb and say, OK, go ahead, go away. Uh, but don't bother us anymore. No, it's you know it's like everywhere. End of tour promotions and uh, some nice awards to go with it. So you know you, you hardly know what to say. But you know there are good people around. One has to stress that. But look at how you, you you sort of get them out of the you know how you bring them to the surface is always the tough thing. And you know that, boy I don't know you know maybe it's. Uh, if it was leprechauns who got us into this, maybe it's leprechauns who will get us out of it. Yeah, no, it seems, you know, it seems more formidable than leprechauns, certainly. And um, let, let me uh, change this up. And again, I, you know, those of us that, I mean, I, I've been, I was part of a United States Navy aircraft carrier for two years. Uh, in my personal awards, one of them's a battle E that uh, the United States uh, ship Ranger uh, the descendant of John Paul when a, mm-hmm. when a John Paul Jones's ship, yeah. uh, the mm-hmm. top, the top gun of the Pacific fleet when I was on it, uh, one, it's, uh, I think, uh, only badly while I was a uh, part of it. And, uh, you know, and I, I spent two years on that ship. I watched the Navy. I sailed around the world with the Navy and I watched what they do. I, you know, when you're a part of ship's company like that and, you know, you help out with cross decking ammunition, uh, aviation ordnance in the in the Indian Ocean. You watch uh, you watch uh, the weapons uh, department, which you're a part of, do their thing on a daily basis. You guard the nuclear weapons on the ship, and you do physical security for the ship around the world. And you see the Navy. I mean, really, I I was always incredibly impressed um, with what they they did and their incredible tradition and and whatnot. And so. Uh, to see the Navy struggling as it is now is, is is painful. But like you, I mean, I mean, I think the the human capital is there. But again, they have a cult. They have an operational problem and a cultural problem. And you're going to need you know big leaders to turn this around, right? And to get people to talk about war fighting in the first paragraph. And I think it was you, Grant, that mentioned when Admiral Aquino. Um, and was it Admiral Richardson who just mm-hmm. left that in both of their comments to Congress, none of them mentioned, neither of them mentioned operational excellence in, in, in their opening remarks that they sat down and crafted the things they wanted to say. Nobody said anything about operational excellence. And I, I thought, I thought you pointed out, it may not have been you, but. Um, that sounds a little more um, clever than me, but, uh, <laughs> but it, uh, but the, you know, the, yeah, that's the the point. It's, right. You know, ultimately, these it comes down to bad leadership, and at a at a certain level, and that's say once again, it's not just the navy, but or, these sorts of problems. You can usually sort of track them back to what amounts to just bad leadership. And, right. You know, sometimes if you get like a, the right guy coming back. And I mentioned Admiral Willard just because he's the one that I'm most familiar with. You, know, you get a, you get the right guy back and all he has to do is show up and open his mouth once. And everyone knows things have changed, uh, but they do have to have the, you know, the, the support in, in Washington right. within the, the Pentagon as well. And uh, that, 
you know, this this idea that the, the U.S. Navy is going to be back to what it used to be or it was this force. And if where everyone knew if the Navy showed up, you know, bad things were going to happen to our adversaries. Right. Uh, and you need to get back to that. And, you know, that so ha- but you know, sometimes it does just take the right guy to turn things around. It's funny how you you, know, you replace a coach on, a say, a basketball team and. You know, the, the players haven't changed much, but somehow it makes a difference. And but we've got to get those guys. And uh, they seem to be uh, pretty well hidden at the moment, uh, would be my sense of things. Um, you know, they say I'm just I've just been waiting for just one guy of any service just to resign in protest and say, look, I couldn't do it anymore. This is what's wrong. This right. is what we'd better do. Right. And but no, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I remember asking. Uh, uh, I think I might have mentioned this. Asking a sort of a senior Marine officer who I think very highly of back in the early 2000s when Rumsfeld was tormenting everyone. I said, well, why doesn't just somebody, one of these guys at the Pentagon, you know, just quit and uh, you know speak up and you know. He, he, you know, and my thinking was, you know, well, you know, if you're a three or four star, you know, how much more are you hoping yeah. for? And he said, well, you know, they all want to get promoted. And, you know, I, I don't understand it. You know, you get people at much lower ranks who sacrifice careers and pensions what, for what they think is principle and or for the good of the serve, the nation. And you have at that level, it seems the higher you get, the you sort of revert to like the mind of about a five-year-old. No, uh, like I said, Grant, high fun- it seems high to go function- the other direction. Yeah, high-functioning conformist. Yeah. That, you know, you, I mean, you know, the lectures that we all got about, you know, moral courage and things like that, you know, um, and then, you know, I, I was, you know, I, I, was, I remember sitting in one thinking, I hope somebody puts their hand up and say, should we expect the same of you, General? And you would have heard crickets. You would have yeah. heard crickets. You know, uh, by co- but just by coincidence, I was reading just the other day about John Paul Jones on Wikipedia. <laughs> I really was. So that's why I knew the Ranger was his, yeah. uh, I think, his first real command. Right. Um, right. And, uh yeah, he he also lived in Fredericksburg, Virginia, for a while. Oh well, how, who who knew that? I wonder if he went who to the. Who I wonder if he went to the Blarney Stone. The, yeah, I think he went up the road to uh, Globe and Laurel. <laughs> That's like nuance, Fredericksburg, Stafford uh, discussion that you can only understand if you're a Marine officer. Well, that's, what the, um, that's what the show is. Okay. The um, the Secretary of Defense. Um, uh, in the Western Pacific, um, he's gone to the Philippines. Uh, he was in Singapore speaking. Uh, I thought his schedule was going to take him to Vietnam, but I'm not sure if it did. Um, what is the impact of the Secretary of Defense out there? Um, he's talking about China and some of the things that the Chinese are doing in the region. Uh, how you know the 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 rules based order and their nine dash line is counterproductive. Uh, to to respecting the rights of other nations, and uh, um, so talk to us about uh, your thoughts on uh, Secretary of Aust- Secretary Austin's uh, most uh, well current trip uh, to the Western Pacific. How's it going? Uh, what's the significance? Oh, I thought it you know it seems to be going you know pretty well. The I mean I think he he gave a speech in Singapore the other day. 
uh, at the so I think the, the Fullerton lecture, right. um, and I read the read the transcript of it, and I thought it's a pretty good speech. It it reminds me a little bit though of eating at a, you know, I really like McDonald's, so every time I go there, you know, I think it's really good, you know, hamburger, French fries, and a milkshake, and you know it's good, but you know. It would be hard. I'd be hard pressed to say that. Well, this meal at McDonald's was a whole lot better than any other meal I've ever had at McDonald's. So his speech, I said, it was good, but it wasn't any. I don't think anyone's going to remember it next week. Um, but he did mention whoever wrote it. You know, I thought they did an okay job, and they did. Um, you know, had plenty of platitudes about you know how we have, want to be. We have to have partners and friends, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true. Um, but they they also did sort of um, lay into the the Chinese, which you know, wasn't quite what you, know, you might have expected. But I thought they did a good job of highlighting what the Chinese are doing, what's wrong with it, and the differences between us and them. Uh, and you know they the and also as I mentioned the the need to to have allies who are working together, um, which it's all true, but. The I think what you're going to find is that people are going to say, okay, um, that's good. Now, when American Navy sends ships into the South China Sea, it sends, say, five ships. And the Chinese, if they want, can put out 50 ships or more. Um, or you come around and you sail through and then, you know, you're there for here for a little bit and then you're gone. The Chinese are always here. Now, what are you Americans going to do about that? And that is the sort of the follow on question that anybody who's thinking of sort of aligning with us more than they already are uh, is going to ask is, OK, now, what are you actually going to do? Uh, so, so it was, a, it was an OK speech. Um, the it often does, you know, the person giving the speech often uh, makes a difference. And in terms of how it's going to be received, like, say, if you had a. Um, boy, I don't know when the last time we had a good defense secretary was or uh, one that sort of made you sit up straight. Um, but if, if you but using, say, Mike Pompeo, when he said stuff, people listened. Well, G- uh, General Mattis secret- was a favorite at the, uh, you know, I remember him when he went to Shangri-La dialogues. I mean, uh, I mean, General Mattis had an aura when he spoke and, you know, that right before or after the Theranos uh, security. <laughs> um, no, he, it's, uh, you know, he had a wasta. Just uh, he, for the sake was, of discussion uh, yeah. after his participation. However, before we learned about the dirty little secret that it was all a sham uh, as before um, that. So, yeah, no, your point, the point's well taken. As I said, when he had that, his was when he had that oomph to him where he just had to open his mouth and people listened, um, you know, he could, he could have given that same speech and people would have, it would have had more impact. And, and that's what I'm getting at. It's, I don't, but I don't, so, I don't know. So, I mean, it would have been, but, it, it would have carried his personal, you know, panache and, 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 uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it's servicing the same targets, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Well, and, 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 and I think you, you, you pointed it out quite appropriately that, um, you know, it's servicing the same targets and it's like, okay, all the usual stuff that gets said 
And with the exception of, um, having watched his comments, I was a bit surprised at the harder line he took with the Chinese. I, I thought that was of note. And then what I was hoping to hear, though, was him make some reference to some economic overture that the G7 would make to specifically Vietnam and the Philippines because of their because of their critical the critical roles yeah. they will play in in my opinion deterring any kind of conflict with China because if we have vibrant relationships with with Vietnam and with the Philippines and we're th- and then those lead to economic expanded economic relationships then the, it changes the entire equation of anything in the South China Sea. And I didn't see anything of that. And I have to tell you, I'm disappointed. You know, it, you know I noticed in the, the speech, he, he mentioned that, you know, President Biden says diplomacy is going to lead. And I think Department of Defense is here to support that diplomatic effort. So maybe there was some uh, unwillingness to get out of what they see as their lane, uh, which turns out that this economic front, that it turns out nobody has it as their lane. It's always somebody else's uh, responsibility. But he could have, uh, yeah, he could have addressed that. And, you know, and, you know, as as part of, um, I don't know, sort sort of a discussion of a broader strategy, not just a, a military to military one, because you know, as noted, I don't think we've got the substance uh, really to convince many people in Southeast Asia. I don't know that he shifted too many minds by uh, what he said. You know, the you know it, it was good, but okay. Now, you know, are you um, you've got three hundred ships, and the Chinese have three hundred fifty and growing. And you don't have a plan for building many more. Your budget, your defense budget, has basically stayed flat, which is the same thing as a, as being cut. You know, your country is destroying itself. Uh, so why exactly should we tell the Chinese to go do something to themselves and line up with you guys? Uh, it, it's a tough sell at this point. Um, part of it, you know, they try to get some mileage, I think, out of the idea that. They're not the Trump administration. So it's some new people in town. Well, yeah, but the, the Trump administration actually improved things in Asia after the Obama era and the Bush era. Uh, and But these guys these days are now pretending that everything was terrible and they're going to fix it. Right. Um, so it's you know, the context um, in which America, this America's, America's back, I believe, is the oh, phrase. Oh, yes, it's building back better. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice Hallmark greeting card uh, thing. That <laughs> but you don't grant, like, like, why do we care if the vast amount of merchandise that's in Walmart or Target is made in the Philippines, is made in Vietnam, or is made in China? And the answer is we shouldn't. Right. If it's the same, if it's the same product, why why wouldn't we incentivize doing business with allies that support, you know, our our worldview in the region? And I, to me, it's a, it's 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 a head scratcher that, I mean, again, if you want to target one nation, it's the Philippines because of the, their geographic significance in the region. 
And if you want to, if you, if you want to let the doors fly open to the Western economies, it should be for the Philippines, because if you can have a great relationship with the Philippines, if you're there militarily, then the whole deterrence piece completely changes. But yet, it's it's just it's crickets on that front. Yeah, it's you know it's um we'll see. But it's um he did the secretary did go on to the Philippines and. Yep. I think we just announced that they, the Filipinos are not going to cancel the so-called visiting forces agreement, right. uh, which really makes it easier for U.S. forces to come and train in in the Philippines. And the president of the Philippines had, of course, canceled, threatened to cancel that and started the process. But then it was held up uh, for a while. But I think there's been an announcement that they're not going to cancel that so that would be considered like a win absolutely a win right you know it is and it is but it is worth remembering of course that during the obama administration that duterte the president of the philippines referred to obama as a son of a something and son of a whore right that's right that's the word he used and he hated obama And Mr. Trump came along and they stabilized that relationship with the Philippines with some, I thought, some pretty good diplomacy and uh, and say at least stabilized it to the point it 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 got better. And now to the point where when they postponed the decision on canceling that, that was considered a win. At that point, it sure sure was. And now now you're seeing the the sorry the final at least it's the Philippines, so you never know, but the final sort of outcome and that the new guys are, of course, taking full credit for it as if they've showed up and fixed it. But I just wish an administration would come in and not think that their predecessors were, you know, Lucifer himself. Uh, It doesn't seem to happen much. But so that that was, um, you know, it was a good thing. Uh, Also, I'd noticed that the Subic Bay, you know, the that Uh. that, um, had some problems. Basically, one of the, I think the main port operators went and Subic Bay, the, the the port kind of went bankrupt, and a couple of years ago, and the Chinese were nosing around to buy it, and it looks as though uh, a North American, maybe an American company, has in fact stepped in with a Filipino entity uh, to to sort of save the day, and that. Is I think that was a favorable development. I don't know the background of how it came about, but that was um, it didn't get that much attention. But it was a good thing too. So, but the secretary's visit, you know, it, it, you know, it, you know, I thought it went well enough, you know, as these visits go. But as I say, once he's gone, uh, you know, now what? You know, is you're still left with this situation where they, you know, we don't quite have the the connections or the clout. Or the the reputation um, to sort of bring uh, countries to our side too quickly, you know. There's stuff to we have things to work with if we're clever enough. But uh, but say the visit itself, I don't think it was a sort of um, sort of a game. I don't like that. It's word, not a game changer, changer, but it hopefully a, it, know, will it, lead, it, 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 yeah, it will lead. Yeah, might might lead to something to some improvements, and you know. So that's and one hopes it does. Uh, and so, you know, we will see how it goes. But the, I thought the speech was pretty well, you know, because I read it was like a McDonald's meal, which right. I, I, I like, but it's not like, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, really fine cuisine, but it's good service, a serviceable sort of, 
sort of presentation. Well, and, and again, if you you know if you look at right the in in the region now um, is the HMS Queen Elizabeth, you know, carrier strike group, mm-hmm. as the Brits call it, and uh, with a um, with a either a frigate or destroyer of. Uh, from what it's Dutch, I think, if I'm not mistaken, so. mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so and the, yeah. that's in the region. Uh, you know, as Grant has mentioned, uh, the French ha- are in the region. So these things happen slowly, um, but I think the next developments, I mean, quite rightly, ought to be economic and ought to be focused on the Philippines and and Vietnam. And and to me, that's. Um, you know, I mean, why all the little things that I buy can't be made in, in the Philippines and Vietnam if it if it strengthens and opens doors and, and raises boats and economies, um, then I'm not exactly sure. Um, but we'll keep our fingers crossed. Um, yeah. Uh, talk to me about um, the Olympics in Japan. The world's uh, been watching Japan and, and the Olympics. Um, any thoughts on that? The Philippines just won their first gold medal ever, so they had a big celebration. But uh, mm-hmm. but uh, Japan, the focus of uh, the Olympics uh, this year. Uh, any thoughts on that, Grant? Yeah, you know, I haven't watched too much of the Olympics um, or followed it that closely. But the, the poor, you know, poor Japan. You know, they they. I don't think they wanted to to hold it. They would like to have postponed it. But apparently, and I didn't quite know this, the the International Olympic Committee. Uh, can force a country pretty much to, you know, to carry out their con- contractual agreement. And uh, the IOC is kind of like an organized crime gang. Um, and you saw it on display with, with Japan. So the Japanese have done their best to pull off the Olympic Games. And there's no spectators, of course, which is a downer, to put it mildly. But they're they're really doing their best to hold the games, you know, have them, you know, be sort of well-run, sort of an attractive affair, and you know, not complain about it. But the the Japanese government has they've had they've got they've had to deal with like a good chunk of their press is just they're just it's like they're whatever the Japanese word for Karens are. I mean, they have just they have been just savaging. The press and saying, "Oh, we're all going to die. You want to kill us?" and blah blah blah. And there's a, a vocal sort of part of Japanese society, which is there's like male Karens and female Karens, and and that's all you hear is the you know the Suga administration wants to kill us, and, and it, they just won't shut up. And they, so they've had to put it on in the face of this you know this chorus of deafening chorus of uh, whiners. And it's so I, you know, I, I, it's going okay, and I hope they can pull it off and finish it and and be done with it. And then these people, the this chorus, they will just move on to the next thing, of course. Um, but it reminds me of after the um, after the uh, 2011 tsunami and earthquake in Japan, when the nuclear plant uh, right. had some trouble up in Fukushima. That there was this chorus once again Japanese, but particularly white, you know, white people uh, who lived in Japan, who were just howling that Japan is finished, the country is doomed, we're all going to die. Get out of Japan when you can. Get out, get out, get out. And you heard plenty of them actually at the U.S. embassy. And 
the uh, you know, of course, we they, they're just a pain in the ass to listen to. But none of us listened to them. Um, said we did everything we could to get up to to that area and help. Um, but these were the people who just whined and whined and whined. And then at the end of it all, it turned out that like the, Japan was not finished. Uh, the death toll wasn't, you know, from nuclear, the nuclear plant was almost nothing. And it still remains almost nothing 10 years later. And so this is something that, you know, we're seeing, you know, in Japan, it is this, this crowd of constant complainers, uh, both Japanese and foreign, uh, that just won't shut up and let the rest of us get on with our lives and actually maybe sort of watch and enjoy a little bit of the Olympics on TV. Um, but that's, you wouldn't, maybe I'd notice it because I'm sort of a little more attuned to Japan, but they, uh, you do wish they'd just be quiet. What are you writing next? Um, what is it? Oh, uh, I have to write something about the ability of the Chinese to get across the Taiwan Strait. Um, someone oh. asked me to put something down, and I've written about it a few times already, but I'll think of some new angle. Um, and because there's a, a guy at Naval War College named Connor Kennedy who does really good work on this this area. He doesn't get a whole lot of attention, but he's uh, he, he like reads all the Chinese stuff, and he's a good, thoughtful guy who's you know wants to figure things out, not coming in with a with a conclusion. Uh, uh, and he's written different. some good stuff recently that that's excellent. So I'm going to work with that. But the other thing I've got in mind is. Um, I noticed an article the other day that the Americans and the Japanese are going to redo their, going to restart their negotiations uh, for the the so-called host nation support, you know, right. the money the Japanese pay the Amer the Yankees every year to defray the cost of U.S. troops in Japan, and it looks as though they, if the report is to believe that the Americans are going to ask for an increase from the Japanese. And uh, you might remember that the, the American version of the Karens who despised Donald Trump criticized him for asking for more money from the Japanese. They accused him of being transactional. And, um, and now the Americans are going to ask the Japanese for more money, even if it's not as much as Mr. Trump's opening offer, opening uh, demand. Um, but I'm but like you, I think I'm old enough. Do you remember when the word hypocrite had a bad meaning? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you, well, it is it, moderate. It long, it's it moderately. Oh my God! It's moderately amusing when you see <laughs> now that that you know everything's on video, right? And so yeah. you know, it's like you you see this whole discussion here in the United States about getting vaccinated. Now, then they start rolling video of <laughs> the president, right, saying, "Yeah, I don't know that I trust this vaccine." You know, the vice president is, you know, is uh, is all about saying, I question the vaccine, anything Donald Trump's been a part of, blah, blah, blah. And so they're saying, hey, if you're looking for the origin of the skepticism about vaccines and then they just then they roll the tapes and it is it is moderate. It is moderately amusing. Speaking of rolling the tape and the media, um, and it'll be my last question. I'll let you go. Um the discussion about um, the origin of COVID-19 uh, continues to be an interesting one uh, with it seems to be more and more um, 
attention and pressure being put on the Chinese who are having none of it. Uh, so I, I'd just be curious about your um, your take on all that. And there was even a report that the French warned the United States that um, that there was thing there were things going on in the Wuhan lab in 2015, and the French evidently built the Wuhan lab that people should be aware of and be sensitized to. And what do they call that? I don't. It's not weaponizing. There's another word when they. I can't remember what the name of the word is relative to viruses, but I'll think gain of function research. There you go. Gain. Oh, yeah. That's very. Isn't that? That's very very mm-hmm. sterile description. Yeah. Gain of mm-hmm. function. I would call it weaponizing. Uh, your thoughts, though, on this? Uh, now it seems like the world's. Oddly enough, uh, more ready to entertain a discussion that this thing, in fact, that, that did come from Wuhan. Well, considering that you couldn't even say it, that, that it might have come from the, the Wuhan lab, you couldn't even say that a year ago or even three or four months ago without being accused of you know, all sorts of things. And banned on Facebook and Twitter, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You couldn't even say it, which, you know, we've, I think we may have talked about it before, but, like, you'd have to be like a, a, I'd say a moderately alert moron would have known from day one that this was at least a possibility. Uh, you know, if I see a giraffe walking down the street, he, I might want to ask if he came from this local zoo. And this is so when you have this virus break out in the one place in all of China where they have a lab that handles these sorts of things, it's at least ought to be on the menu of things to consider. And so when you get people and swear, you know, insisting that there's nothing to see, that it couldn't happen, you know, you'd have to be a complete fool not to suspect uh, something's going on. So but you're right that now there is more recognition of it. Uh, that it's at least as a, a possibility that you can say without being, you know, censored or canceled, etc. Um, but I think that the I'm not sure where this is actually going to go. I think it may not go very far. Uh, I don't think that the sort of half that uh, I would call it part of our ruling class in Washington wants to pursue it um, for different reasons. And then I think there's other people, you know, that little Fauci fella. Uh, boy, the evidence sure looks to me like he had some hand in, you know, funding what the Chinese were doing. Uh, and he's got some incentive not to have this go anywhere. So, you know, I have a feeling that ultimately that while it, it's now you can at least say, raise the possibility, I'm afraid this is going to end up, say, where the John Durham investigation went. I think it's just going to go nowhere ultimately. And I think the Chinese will get away with it. Uh, if the Trump, if we'd had a second Trump administration, that this would not have died, um, and the, the Chinese would have been paying for it. But I have, just have a feeling that this is going to just sort of peter out uh, over time. That would be my guess. So, all right, Grant. Anybody looking to access your work? Where would you tell them to go? Um. Huh. I've been writing, uh, well, Center for Security Policy. Everything I write goes up there. It's Center for Security Policy. Um, And I've been uh, been writing for, you know, Epic Times uh, a good bit lately. Um, I think that any any organization that the communist Chinese tried to destroy your printing plant, 
and uh, then rough up your reporters has probably got something going for it. Uh, but they do some good old what we used to remember when reporting used to have a certain meaning. Like yeah, there was actually get, a technical definition that went with yeah, that. Yeah. Like you, you go and get the facts and then present them and let the reader decide. They they, they still do that that reporting. Um, but I had something written in uh, Aspie, the um, uh, that Australian Strategic Policy Institute that uh, the uh, the other week, which was. Um, sort of, for me at least, a, a minor coup. Um, so you find it here and there. If you type my name into the internet, you'll, you know, can, and it's not as good as reading about John Paul Jones. Um, but uh, there's a, a few things. But the Center for Security Policy has, um, I think, just about everything uh, in recent times. There you have it, Grant Newsom. Grant, first of all, always enjoy the discussion. Um and uh, the little liberal arts nature of these discussions. So thank you very much. Um, stay out of the hot, humid uh, heat of, uh, of Taipei. And, uh, and uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Okay, sounds good. Anytime. Always appreciate it. There you have it, Grant Newsham. That'll do it. My thanks to Grant for coming on. Always interesting. Um, if you if you missed it or you're hopping in at the end, uh, we talk about uh, on the heels of the announcement that a United States Navy sailor will be charged in the Bonhomme Richard incident. Uh, Grant's been on the Pacific for a long time, worked with, worked with the Navy for a long time. So we talk about that. We talk about Secretary of Defense um, in Singapore and the Philippines, uh, kind of touring the Western Pacific, um, the Olympics. Subic Bay being operated by a North American company, which is uh, a good thing and interesting. And then uh, the Wuhan lab. Um, doesn't seem like there's as much resistance to the narrative that this thing might have come out of Wuhan. And you've had rumors of a defector that has given the United States information. You also have uh, a story that surfaced in the last week that the French warned the United States about things at the Wuhan lab in 2015. So anyway, uh, again, Grant, always an uh, interesting, interesting guy and with always an interesting perspective. So uh, my thanks to him for coming back on. Uh, so I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio. Have a great day. If I can help you, help somebody else. Don't be afraid to reach out. All the contact information on both allmarineradio.com and posttraumaticwinning.com ultimately gets to me. So don't be afraid to reach out. I'd be more than happy to. On that note, have a great day. I'm out.